Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. I apologize to everyone for the long hiatus from this podcast. Uh, this fall has been very busy um, with the launch of the Shotgun Start and then a lot of other stuff, including tons of travel. So it's just been uh, a little bit of a break, but we are going to be coming back strong now with at least hopefully weekly podcasts for the remainder of 2018 and then 2019 also. So expect a lot of uh, new interviews to come up in the near future. Um, Today, I'm really excited for the first part of a two-part podcast with Colin Sheehan. Uh, Most of you probably won't recognize his name. He is the Yale golf coach and a former prolific golf writer. Uh, He played at Yale also. He wrote um, for a golf magazine in the late 90s and early 2000s and also published a book about the U.S. amateur in the mid-2000s. So Colin uh, is a great golf course architecture mind, college golf coach, and also a founder of the Outpost Club. So we had a a great discussion. It's going to be a two-part podcast, and part one focuses in on the Yale golf team, his his coaching there, the Yale golf course, and then amateur golf and the USAM. So I hope you guys enjoy. Part two will be up either later this week or uh, for Monday of next week. Without further ado, here is Colin. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. graduated Yale in 1997. How would you say that college golf has changed since then? Like all incidentally athletic, probably getting uh, more serious, taking, taking sort of following the lead of revenue generating sports. Um, we're very lucky in the Ivy League. We're not part of the machine that is the NCAA we're in the NCAA. we're in the we're, we're amateur athletics and we remain so in some ways we're closer to D3 where the kids pay to come to school and yeah they get a little bit of support in the process uh, they don't let us support unqualified candidates but they help they help it does help sort of uh to, you know, help uh, grease this kid for the <laughs> for the applicant, but the kids, in the, at least in terms of golf, uh, the beautiful thing is they take it so seriously, and, and and it's it's not any it's not getting covered on Sports Center, and it's there's very little attention. If it wasn't for the occasional parent or girlfriend, there wouldn't be any spectators, and yet um, the kids play their hearts out, they put it all on the line. Uh, very lucky. It's a 122-year-old program 
We had 21 national championships all in the hickory shafted era. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's it's truly amateur athletics in the best sense of it. Um, and, you know, academics are the top priority, but their sport is a close second. And they're dedicated to their craft. Um, we, face, we face some sort of headwinds of academic rigor and or, or an academic threshold in the recruiting process and we are in the northeast you touched on it a little bit being student athletes uh no scholarships uh i imagine the class rigors of uh, ivy league university have a you know a large effect on practice time how, how much less would you say in terms of hours at the course or hours practicing do Ivy League players spend than your power conference players? Well, that's a good question. I wonder. I wonder how much Illinois practices. There's an NCAA limit to 20 hours on six days a week, but I know the kids can voluntarily practice more than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're lucky. We start at the end of August when classes begin, and the kids go pedal to the metal for about five, six weeks. And by then they're running on fumes around, around the time of midterms and when classes are really starting to really ratchet up. So we'll, uh, we'll practice during the week, three to six. Um, we're very lucky. The uh, Yale golf course is only 12 minutes from campus. Um, and in that time you go from sort of a downtown area of New Haven out into the sort of forest where you don't see a single house from anywhere on the course. It really is a uh, on its own. Just just leaving campus at two forty five, getting to getting to the course on some beautiful day in September, to hit balls for half an hour, and then play like a twilight nine with your teammates or some of your best friends. Like it's a pretty good three hours on uh, just some weekday afternoon. You come they come back to campus around six fifteen, go to the dining halls, feeling refreshed, feeling wonderful. Yeah, seriously. Um, but we don't, you know, we don't have that. I don't have that conflict of interest about the, about the sort of performance of the team, about having that sort of be, it's never a job for the kids. You know, they, they don't need to be motivated. Um, and I don't suspect, I don't begrudge any kid who goes to a major conference and maybe even accepts a little scholarship money. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm always impressed with the kids that do that. They have a sort of vision and, but you wind up working for the program, you know, they sort of own you. <laughs> um, and a lot of coaches, like they want their kids eligible, but they need them maximizing their practice. And, and, you know, the kids don't, I don't, I, I find it hard for them to have a quality undergraduate experience trying to balance a, a serious, serious athletic commitment. In addition to being a student, in addition to having a, in addition to sort of taking advantage of a, it was four years. It should be four wonderful years of your life. Yeah, yeah. I, you, so you've won uh, Coach of the Year a couple of times in the Northeast. Saw you know, and you guys have won a bunch of Ivy League championships since you've been there. A bunch of McDonald Cups. A lot of the tournaments that you play regularly, you guys have won. Uh, how would you say that your approach to coaching these kids differs from? Uh, either, you know, the coach you had at Yale or, and also other coaches you see around? Well, I had a legend when I was at Yale, um, Dave Patterson. He was there 33 years, born in Paisley, Scottish, emigre, 
Um, he was there from 1975 to 2008. He was, he was wonderful. Um, I, I don't want to compare. I definitely am, do not want to compare anything I did to him. He's, he's amazing. Uh, or any of the other coaches in the Ivy league. I, I, I just, my own approach, I try to be relaxed. I sort of have a degree. I have a serious uh, degree of sympathy for the kids and as they navigate, uh, being an undergraduate, being in college, being 18 to 22, trying to play golf. Uh, I, I do my best in the recruiting process. Uh, try to get, try to get some really good players. Um, the team success helps, helps that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I try to have them just be in a, uh, in just a sort of positive mindset, try to have it, try to have as little stress and drama on the team side of things. Um, we never focus on winning. Uh, we go to tournaments with, with, a, with a team that's always pretty good, but we, you know, we just focus on being the, being the smartest team out there. Uh, the fewest unforced errors, like hedging and playing the odds, uh, knowing when to attack and when to be smart, when to lay back and, and things you might do on your own when you're playing tournaments in the summer don't, aren't really sort of maybe always appropriate for um for the you know for a situation when you're when you're playing on behalf of others there's we kind of we kind of look down on stupid choices yeah i never really thought about That's that good. but Do it in the, the uh playing team golf with the five five so in college golf five scores you got five players and four scores count like a quadruple bogey from one of your players like is devastating in, in team golf. Yeah. Like they're going to have bad days. They're going to miss shots, but like you, you can't ever let your score be any higher than it, than it should have been. And I've got certain players who love to attack and, and take risks. You know, we, I got to give a shout out to Johnny lie class of 17. I mean, the guy just, you know, he, you know, he was ma- he was like Maverick out there. <laughs> it was dangerous, but uh, but I've had a few others. Henry deserves a shout out sometimes. Just hitting driver, being aggressive, and I'm not going to stop that. Um, I you know I, I, I sometimes incur- I and sometimes enjoy watching that. <laughs> but you're right. You can't. You know, there's just there's just an entirely different element playing on behalf of others. That's the most beautiful thing about it. Like you you sacrifice on behalf of your teammates to sort of be prepared for that tournament. You sort of, you uh, get work done earlier in the week. You don't necessarily go out a certain night. You, you know, you spend an extra half hour being, um, you know, addressing sort of aspects of your game that need it. And then for, to have five guys go out over a 54 hole tournament to sort of compete under pressure down the stretch, um, to have those scores sort of add up, to a team went after the fact is just um, is fabulous. And for the, and for the, for a player to be the one that sort of drags the team across the finish line is just, there's, there's nothing more gratifying than that. Johnny lie, all time uh, golf name. You, yeah. so you've mentioned uh, the Yale course a couple of times. So it's the top rated collegiate golf course in the country. Do you think it has like an impact on recruiting? Does it help you get kids um, because you play a better golf course than most schools? 
I think it has to. I'm very so all 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 conversations about the Yale golf course, uh, you know, m- m- must include the sort of disclaimer that I'm biased, that I think it's fabulous, and I actually def- I have to defend it a lot of times to the other coaches, particularly, you know, Michael Hughes up there at Brown and Will Green down at Princeton. They're sort of there's a lot of Yale course haters. There's a lot of blind shot haters. Um, you know, McDonald, there's people that don't see the light, but uh, the facility is incredible. Um, like I said, 12 minutes from campus um, in an, it feels like you're in a nature preserve. It, you could be in Western Massachusetts. It's like you're up in the Berkshires when you're playing. Um, it's, a, it's like, yeah, it's, it's uh, it gives you that sort of just feeling of being away. It's it really a- does. I having been there recently, I I can attest to this. I was I was in New Haven. I was staying down there, and uh, I was looking around when I got in. I'm like, God, it's so flat. You know, I don't know what everybody's talking about with this, you know, wilderness that is Yale. And all of a sudden, the next morning, I'm driving up, and it just like transforms about five minutes outside of the course, and you're just like, oh, these are the hills and everything. And then you're there. It's just so secluded and. It's a uh, it's an incredible golf course. I, I found myself midway through my first round telling the guy I was playing with, a uh, fellow podcast guest, uh, uh, Riley Johns, I was saying, God, I, I need to move to New Haven. I want to play this place every day. And, Let's uh, go. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So Smart guy. You're a smart guy. <laughs> so so uh, in terms of, you know, everybody always, always says, uh, you know, the Yale course what it could be versus you know what it is and what it is now is a great golf course but what do you think the the ceiling on the Yale course if it ever you know reached its full potential and got back to its you know original self so say with with great conditioning right so you know I'm very blessed I get to play some good golf around you know here and there and I don't think there's a course in America that when I come home from playing it that I don't think Yale stands shoulder to shoulder with. So it's in a it's in a it's in the peer group of the first order, whatever that is. First 25 courses, I'm not going to suggest it's top 10, but you know, like if even at some point it whatever whatever Chicago golf is rated, Yale better be ranked higher. <laughs> whatever uh, you know, it should it's it's in the 20s. It's in the low twenties. It's in the high teens. That's a restored Yale. I think the day it opened, it was in the top ten in America, and now it's one hundred and ninety-nine. That's an interesting story. But it's you, you just you you can tell that it's it's ceiling is at some point. It, these courses in that conversation are just so good. It's just um, you know you're splitting hairs. You're splitting hairs among the, the sort of great eighteen hole courses in America, and, and Yale's in that conversation. Having been around it so long and so many times, what's the aspect of Yale that and the course that you love the most? Um, I there's no question it's challenging, but it's wide. It's come back to the field in terms of difficulty in the modern age with equipment. Um, I think that the idea of the golf course it presents it has the a sort of a deceptively playable, fair sort of 
straightforward strategy of sorts. Like it's, it's not a complicated course to solve, but it's challenging. And I think like in that era of McDonald's golf, like they didn't, they, every client had a different request and Yale came along, brought McDonald out of retirement essentially to build his, to design his last course. And on the committee that Yale put together included an undergraduate who was Jess Sweetser, who had just won the U.S. Amateur that fall at the country club, beating Bobby Jones and, and uh, you know, among others. And I think that was the course that McDonald and Rayner built that was intended for the highest caliber of golfer in the country. It was the closest thing to a, essentially a building someone trying to build a U.S. Open venue from that era. I mean, that's really what it was. Um, it had to be essentially a standard scratch score of like 78 when it when it opened in the Hickory era with with wound balls and wearing tweed jackets. <laughs> Even the drive on one alone. I mean, it it wasn't it was not a course for everybody, even though there were three sets of tees and they did promote three courses. There was just certain bunkers that I'm, I can't imagine your average person would have tr- could have could have could have recovered from. I, I think it's like an endemic, uh, like a, a problem with American golf with like where a bunker people feel like they have to be able to easily recover from nowadays. I remember during the U.S. Open, people were appalled when guys were missing in a bunker at, at Shinnecock and couldn't keep the ball on a green. And it's like, if the ball, if that was a water hazard, you know, nobody would ever complain about it. You know, and the guy would be dropping and hitting his third shot or his fourth shot instead of having a chance to make a bunker shot and, you know, make a birdie. It's like, it's crazy to me because like a really deep bunker at Yale, say like the second, you know, if you hit it in there, it's essentially like going into the water. <laughs> right. And you can play that shot. You know, it's it's not an un, it, the way the sort of I, I'm fascinated that, that those bunkers predate the sort of bounce the Saracen wedge, mm-hmm. you would have had to just open up a sort of thin-soled niblick in the old days and play a play a really sort of clever uh, picked bunker shot out of the out of the out of the sand. It must have been it must have been so hard. When uh, when you guys have the McDonald Cup and all, you know, you get this year you had Illinois there. You know, a couple of years ago you had Illinois there with you know when they have now four or five guys from that team that are on, you know, either the web.com PGA tour or European tour. What did, what kind of shots are they hitting into the greens now versus, you know, this golf course that when it opened was like a par 78. Yeah. It's just, it's unfair. The loft of the iron they're hitting into the greens, like 17, for this, for any good college kid, my you know the longer hitters on my team, it's drive and pitching wedge. The the principal's nose is an is is an afterthought. The there's there's a number of bunkers on the course that my players are never going to be in. They're never they're never in the right trap on seven. Uh, they're no, they're no longer in the bunkers on eight. Um, you know, it's just that those shots, those targets used to ask you to sort of approach them 
with the loft of a four or a five or a present day six iron. And it's just, it fundamentally alters the sort of the difficulty when it's a nine iron or eight iron or sandwich. And that's, and that's unfortunate. You know, I think the hole that plays the most differently today from, from in the nineties was, is eight. I tell this to people is eight's become a, a birdie hole for the, for, for, for the good college golfer. They, they rip driver up on the ridge. They've got an attacking wedge. They see the pin, they see the green, they've got the bank on the right to help. And they're, they're generally disappointed if they're not 10 feet with, with like a good look at birdie in the old days <laughs> hit a spinny driver with like the original great big birth or big Bertha and have 167 in a crosswind in early April with the, 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 the approach was blind hitting hitting like a six iron and praying not to miss an either bunker I mean, that was how you played the eighth hole at yale <laughs> you tried not to make a nine and now it's like a birdie hole <laughs> i don't you know unfortunately that's the reality of of where we've let the ball in the game go i i'm i'm so disappointed that a game of tradition let itself let itself get sort of run roughshod over by the equipment by a sort of uh, a sort of a compliant regular you know governing body and and uh, technology companies run amok yeah it's uh it's crazy that like uh, uh businesses that profit off the game or have more power than the governing body in a in a sense it's, uh, yeah i mean it's a shame that like you know even though for as much as baseball changes Wrigley Field and and Fenway Park and are the identical dimensions and they're still using sort of, you know, ash bats and, and the ball might be changing a little, but essentially it's the same game. Like I can't believe we weren't able to stop it at some point, but, and so I don't think, I don't think a course has been more, has been more adversely affected, more adversely affected than Yale. Yeah. It's just, you, you, the, the NCAA said they'd love to, Bring a national championship to Yale. We've offered it would be a wonderful place in late May, early June. We'd have we'd be able to have these amazing events for the field on campus. And yet we need to add our we we need to add four. They've told us we need to add four hundred yards to our golf course. That's it's crazy. Minimum, <laughs> minimum. I mean, minimum. It's, it's right. uh, it's I. So I played there a couple of days, and it, it was funny. I I we, I was playing with you. I ripped a tee shot on one with a regular driver, regular ball, had a wedge in. And then I pulled out uh, the hickory shafted driver with a ballada ball. And I barely carried the water by like (laughs) three yards. I mean, I I carried the water hazard by three yards. I would have had like 220 blind shot into the first green. And instead I had 130 yards with a, and it was a little pitching wedge into the green. And I mean, it's madness to me. There's in the original in the original um, description of how the first hole was played. They reference if you didn't care if you didn't hit your drive far enough, you'd have a blind shot. They're implying that it was they proje- they projected that people would be on the upslope of the fairway and have a blind shot from two ten into the green. Think about that hole right out of the blocks. That's already a that's already a four point five. That's already a par five out of the blocks in nineteen twenty six. Yeah, uh, on one at Yale alone. And now, yeah, now they just now the guys fly driver and they get a sort of a kicking a forward and to the right sort of kick to the middle of the fairway and down below, and it's it's a nine iron or wedge or whatever. It's yeah. It's uh. So it, 
if you could make one change to college golf, what would it be? Well, everyone would wave. If you could wave the magic wand, you'd have golfers would play in four hours and a threesome would get, would be done in four hours and 15 minutes. I understand why pace of play is an issue. You're trying, like we mentioned earlier, you can't shoot a stroke higher. You don't want to shoot a single stroke worse than you, you could have had. You, you know, you, you have to take your time on short putts. That really is it. It's, it's the putting that sort of is a, is the sort of, um, is the speed bump. But, uh, if I could change, I wish that clubs would also make themselves more available. It's a shame. The majority of the, um, the college golf schedule is, uh, is Monday, Tuesday events with a Sunday afternoon practice round. It's understandable why it's when the facilities are made available. Um, so, but that's a lot of class being missed. I know maybe, you know, even the sort of major programs that's, it, it has to add up trying to race home from a tournament, flying on a Tuesday night, nothing can go wrong in the, in that process, trying to, you know, or else the kids might miss another day of school. Um, I would love to see a culture of, of of architecturally significant courses private clubs um voluntarily um contributing their facility to a venue and may and 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 maybe even doing it sort of on a friday saturday sunday event with a friday practice round and so maybe that's wishful thinking but that's one thing i would change um that's i yeah, <laughs> I would, I I agree with that. I, we have in in Chicago, the CDGA runs our tournaments, and like in recent years, I remember when I was growing up, we played like they played a lot of really great golf courses. But these recent years, they've you know you can just tell that that they aren't getting the access to the great clubs that they used to. And I'm I'm 32. It doesn't matter if I play uh you know a state amateur at Olympia Fields versus you know. A, a okay golf course like that doesn't matter but i think really when i think about it holistically what it matters for is the 15 year old kid that qualifies for the state am you know and right. it's his first real championship golf experience and it's like if that kid's playing at olympia fields or you know chicago golf or shore acres or in those championship conditions as as opposed to playing you know a a course that never was a championship golf course. It, when he get when he qualifies for his first USGA event, he's going to be so much more ready for it, and that's where it matters. And it, same thing with with the college program. Like playing great golf courses helps your kids, I imagine, when they are trying to get to the next level or when they're playing those USAM events and and. All of a sudden, you step it up, step up into a USGA event. It's a whole different beast than playing, you know, your local, you know, uh, county open at Joe Blow Public Golf Course. It's, it's it's different, and they get excited about it. And imagine that fifteen-year-old kid, and he's like, he's got his eyes on qualifying for that event, and he's going to treat it. It's going to be indelible in his memory of like of being a, of those early, you know, when kids play that the first time they ever play a course that had a major or anything in that type of echelon, like that's such a major milestone for kids. And, and if, you know, and that's turning them on to sort of architecture and, and seeing just sort of right measuring themselves against 
you know, adults and yeah, absolutely. You know, I ran, ran Morissette recently had some list about the custodians of the game and, and I understand his, his list sort of focused on architecture and, but I, I remember very clearly uh, thinking immediately, like it should be custodians of the game are that, that term is for the clubs that answer the question, like, what did you do for junior golf this, this season? Did you make yourself available for an event or a qualifier or a women's, a, a girl's junior, a, an, an amateur event? Like what's, who do you let play your course? Do your, how often do the caddies get out? Is it limited to Mondays? Do, do the sort of female members have equal sort of representation at the club? Like what did, what did your course do to grow the game? And, you know, we're very lucky here at Yale that, you know, they've got clinics and they're trying their and they've got they're constantly introducing grad students to the game and undergrads and, and the New Haven sort of first tee projects like that's a custodian of the game. It hosted junior PGA two day, 36 hole you know, section of it. The winner of that goes on to the junior PGA like we need courses to have that, to in clubs to feel that obligation that it's, you know, and, and they did a lot do, but, you know, a lot don't. You know, I, nothing nothing annoys me more than a club, you know, sort of like this concept that no one plays there. There's no one ever on it. You know, it's like, who's what, what good is that? What, what you know, every, of course, that's their prerogative. But are they are they what are they doing to serve the game? And that's to me what I think a lot of courses and I, I have a lot of respect for the courses that go out of their way to do that. I really do. And and that make themselves available for those section events and, and host charity events or whatever it is like, you know, have that have where the pro has a thriving junior participation where they've where they've, you know, really dedicated themselves towards towards having the sort of the juniors at the club sort of engaged and and playing and competing in inner clubs and things like that. Yeah. What what amazes me, too, is like, you know, we, we had this one event and it's like we had two guys reached the final of this, like our, our state match play tournament. It's like we had two guys that reached the final that are two guys that play in crump every year. And they're two of the best mid-ams in the country. It's like, it, is that a big hassle for your club to like have like two of the 25 best mid-ams playing a 36 hole final on a Thursday? Like, wouldn't you want that if you're <laughs> if your club? Like, wouldn't you want to go watch that? <laughs> Right. It's it's just it's kind of nutty to me. It's like you don't want to have like the best players in the state. Like I get that it's a pain in the ass and not being able to use your club is one thing. But like, you know, it's it should be more. It should be looked at as an honor. A lot, of these, a lot of these things. And that's the way it was. You know, when when these courses were built, it was an honor. I mean, that's what this was all centered around. Like you look at the Philly school, like the Philly school of architecture, those guys did that so they stopped getting their ass kicked by New York and uh, Boston in the right. Leslie Cup. You know, that's why they started building Marion and Pine Valley and, and all those other great Philadelphia golf clubs is like they did that so that their amateur golfers could contend. That's interesting, yeah. So um, you wrote a book after you graduated college about the history of the U.S. Amateur Golf Championship. Um. Outside of, you know, C.B. McDonald's ex exemplary start to the USAM, who, is, who did you find to be the most interesting or the most underappreciated amateur winner that kind of goes overlooked in, in history? 
Um, well, I just a quick correction. I, I, it was published in, I, I wrote it, I was hired when I was 28. I wrote it mostly when I was 29. So it was in 04, 05. Um, and by the way, I'll, I joke that I'll never know the experience of childbirth. However, book took nine months, it weighed seven pounds, and it only got completed with an incredibly painful final push that would have been a whole lot better on drugs. Um, it was also simultaneously the worst business decision I ever made and the most gratifying thing I've ever done. Um, the, Mike Beckridge, the publisher, he offered me $9,000 to do it. And I thought I was, I, I told him I, 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 he needed to throw in a complete set of the classics of golf. And, and when he said yes, I thought that I somehow pulled a fast one on him. Like I was getting a deal, <laughs> but I, uh, it was a labor of, it was a labor of love. I was, uh, I wrote it from West 72nd street. Um, I interviewed 47 past champions. Um, I didn't have a car at the time. I would take, I'd get up at six 30 in the morning and I would, I would take the, um, the, the red line from West 72nd street to grand central or no, to uh, to Penn station. And then I would take sort of New Jersey railroad out to far Hills. And then I would hitchhike from the far Hills train station to the USGA library to get there at, at nine o'clock. And I would, I was, I spent a few weeks just pouring through the archives and photocopying everything I could. And, um, you know, and they would make me have to take, 12 to one off when the, when the sort of archives were closed and I would, I, I guess I'd go outside and have a sandwich and, and, and read what I was, had already sort of worked on, but it was a, it was a really great experience. Um, let's see. It, it was, it was beautiful to track the history of the game. Uh, of course there was for the, for the first 25, 30 years, the U S amateur was sort of the more uh, prestigious tournament. Uh, the amateur amateur, Amateur golfers through the 20s were every bit that equal of the professional, slightly better, obviously, with Bobby Jones. But there was a state, there was a slew of great players. Um, it was it was fascinating to watch how it evolved, how it grew, um, how it moved back and forth in those days when it was basically there was a stretch when it was it was Garden City and Chicago golf, and there was a genuine rivalry between the East and the West. And real partisan nature of it with uh, <clears throat> with the players. Um, I've I found the uh, you know, and then I'd say I, I you're probably you probably you probably too young to remember them. Maybe two of the most compelling stories in the U.S. Amateur was uh, Mitch Voges, who was 41 when he won in 1991 at the Honors Course. He was there with his family. And his kids, and as soon as he was knocked out of the tournament, they were going to go on a family vacation and go see the Black Bears. And the guy had been a great player, had briefly was at BYU. He was playing basically club events in uh, Southern California. And it was a totally amazing story. And he, and he, in how he made it to the tournament through, through match play, blisters the size of, of half dollars on his feet. And he beat Manny Zerman in the finals, you know, one of those sort of all-American college golfers. Uh, really remarkable. And how he went on to play in the Walker Cup that year at Port Marnock. And 
Two years earlier was an equally fascinating story of Chris Patton, who was 300 pounds, an All-American at Clemson, and he won the U.S. Amateur at Marion. And thing, he was his parents were he grew up on a soybean farm in in rural South Carolina, a real sort of great athlete, was a sort of slugger in 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 um, in little league, and and with got played once before Christmas one year when he was 12. His parents got him a set of clubs and he, he went out and shot a 127. And then by the following summer, he was like a, he was like a scratch golfer. That's nuts. And then the last practice round at home before he left for Marion, he made like 10 birdies in a row on his way to, to go to Marion. And what, what was interesting is he was always presented as an oddity because he was overweight. He was kind of a, it was, it was kind of really easy to, portray him as like a Southern redneck. And he was, of all the people I interviewed, I would always transcribe. And when I was transcribing them, you know, some of you had to edit more than others. And, and Chris Patton actually like spoke in these perfect paragraphs is, and he gave the best answers. And, and I, I felt like either one of those guys could be, could, could have, could our sort of our, our, our have the material for a, for a movie or a story or a book on their wins, um, fleshing those out, like really great, really great struggle. And I think what the, my, one of my favorite takeaways from the book was that inevitably in order to win the U S amateur, especially in, in the current format, especially, um, every single player has an inevitable moment where they're on the ropes, where they, in some cases, it's surviving a playoff to get to get through the sectional qualifying, um, or to be in the sort of the match, the sort of group sudden death playoff to be the last those on the number trying to get into match play, or being you know two down with three to go in the second round, or one down with one to go. And, and I love those moments where essentially they were they were on the they were on the verge of elimination long before the finals. Um, cause you, you cannot win the amateur without multiple scares, you know, look at Tiger Woods. He went to the finals of every final hole of every, of every match he was in. Um, so anyway, I, I always, I always enjoyed those moments where someone felt like they they're sort of their, their luck had run out and, uh, and, uh, somehow they sort of, you know, because of the vicissitudes of the game, they were able to chip in from the edge of the green and their opponent, like three putts from 12 feet, like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I always love that. It's a, that's the thing with it. USAM. It, it's funny. Cause like the PGA tour has their match play tournament and they've over the years, it's become less and less of a match play tournament. You know, now it's got round robin pool play to figure out the 16. And it's like, they just can't seem to embrace the the underdog story or like the the interesting story of you know everybody always goes back to when uh was it Kevin Sutherland they had like Kevin Sutherland was in the finals i forgot who he was playing but it was like the 63rd seed versus the 61st seed like but in the NCAA men's basketball tournament i mean that would be revered if, if right. you know if the if a 12 seed faced off against an 11 seed people would be going nuts in the final four and it's it's so interesting because the USAM nobody knows the players yet, so they, you don't know the players a, yet. It, there isn't this problem that like oh no like if uh, if if 
if Dustin Johnson gets knocked out, it's bad for TV. Right. So, uh, by the way, in uh, Jay Siegel, uh, who is like a reinstated amateur, you know, was a dominant amateur in the 70s and 80s. He wins twice in like 82, 83. Um, and he's trying to be the first player ever to win the U.S. Amateur three times. Before Tiger did it, it was a thing. Like Jones never did it. No one had come around to it. Um, you know, Harvey Ward won twice and then was ineligible. It just, it was, it's unusual that no one had ever won it three times in a row. And he makes match play in Oklahoma. I think at, at, um, at, at, at Oak tree. Um, and he loses to Rocco mediate giant killer, this 19 year old kid from like Western PA. No one had ever heard of. And in, in he sort of, it was like one of the great upsets in amateur golf. And it was interesting that he nearly did it to tiger at, at Torrey pines, you know, like kind of, um, yeah, you know, Rocco. Sort of, you know, Rocco, think about that 19 year old kid. who didn't know any better. But then again, you're right. That's the beauty of 18 holes. Bobby Jones said it. There's nothing, nothing more perilous for the for the sort of favorite than an 18 hole match. Anything can happen. I really, by the way, I really uh, a golfer who, um, but all of them had compelling stories. But Vinnie Giles, sort of Marvin Vinnie Giles, kind of lost on the on the sort of on the sort of golf history scene at the moment he spent it he had famously had a long career as an agent um he could have played pro and he opted even in the mid 60s the the pro the sort of the there there was still sort of his his reluctance to turn pro was like you don't make any money you stay at the holiday inn you know with the sort of with the sort of coarse towels and and the and the little bar of soap like he went to law school instead he, he followed an amateur career he didn't he even as late as the, the late 60s he didn't see the sort of upside of, of pga tour living back then it's kind of interesting do you think we'll ever see a uh an amateur a great uh, somebody stay stay amateur and not turn pro and like the will we ever see another bobby jones harvey ward type player you know i thought maybe maverick mcneely had that chance you know sort mm -hmm. of i understand i i don't i don't sort of second guess his decision but he had the potential to do do just that i think it's out there um you know there was they, they but the, the there used to be tons of those guys yeah you know robert robert sweeney who lost to palmer at country club of detroit in 1954 he was this fascinating individual. He like gave strokes to Hogan at Seminole. He was like this stylish Wall Street banker, like lived on Park Avenue, played at the at Sands Point and Seminole, was like a plus two, won the British Amateur, went to Oxford, flew for England. He and his brother helped fund like a squadron for England when it was still the Battle of Britain before like, United States even got involved in World War II. It's like there's like types of characters out there mm -hmm. used to be more common. Willie Ternisa and his family. You're right. I would love to. Nothing would make me happier than seeing somebody come along. You know, like if, you know, just like a better like Nathan Smith to like win the amateur and like and you know, sweet someone to sweep the U.S. and British amateurs in the same year. And and I would love to see an amateur. 
I would like to see another amateur win on the PGA Tour. That would be good. I think that, that that's gonna sense. that's gonna happen with one of these kids one of these days. You right. Know? That that'll happen. I mean, yeah. Shane Lowry won the Irish Open as an amateur too nice. years ago. Um, but the uh, yeah, I mean, like it, it was amazing this year. Like Stuart Hagestad got to the round of eight in the USAM, and everybody was like going nuts. It was like, right? It, it's like Stuart Hagestad is a is a great mid am player, but you know, it, I remember he texted me once and he said, you know, like if Maverick stays stays am I'm, I'm so screwed like you know he's gonna win every single mid-am by the time he's when he's 25 he's gonna win every right. year for decades what do you think about the reinstated am um i think they i think that they play like super ams for the rest of their life <laughs> i think they're already very good yeah. and i think that there's some aspect of those years when you were playing 52 weeks of the year as a pro that that stay with you. Um, they have to be allowed to come back. I have no problem with the process. Uh, I don't hate the players. I don't hate the game. Um, you know, it, it is what it is. Maybe mid-am should be 30. <laughs> maybe, uh, or maybe reinstated ams can't compete in the USAM for a certain number of years. Maybe it's five. They can be amateurs, but they maybe, I don't know. I, I don't have a, I don't have a, I don't have a strong hot take on reinstated M's, but um, it's, uh, I do like seeing, I do like seeing though, the story of the guy I'm forgetting his name, the guy who won the mid M last year and he, the firefighter from Brockton, Massachusetts. Perzali, Matt Perzali. Yeah, I love that. I'm I'm glad that there's sort of a little bit the 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 amateur scene is 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 wider than it used to just be a sort of you know a sort of Pine Valley seminal crowd, which is which was great. But like, you know, I'm glad to see that sort of elite kind of those sort of career amateurs that that really love to compete kind of i like seeing sort of more and more of them coming out and coming out from sort of all over the place yeah yeah we just we gotta we gotta get some of them in the usam it can't be just the mid-am you've been listening to the fried egg podcast we do the digging for you 